You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared history should be held in common and accessible to all. I'm Elena Levy, and in this episode, we're looking into Appalachian Movement Press, an offset print shop and publishing house that was based in Huntington, West Virginia from 1969 to 1979. They were largely the go-to print shop for activist groups in the region for about 10 years, but they also published a lot of anti-corruption journalism. They republished a lot of labor history about the region. And then they were, for a time, the primary printing outlet for radical organizer and educator and poet Don West. That's Sean Slifer, artist, writer, self-taught historian, and creative director and curator at the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. Sean has been researching Appalachian Movement Press for an article he published in Signal, a journal of international political graphics and culture. In this episode, Sean will speak with us about his research into Appalachian Movement Press and about the identity movement in Appalachia in the 70s. Appalachian Movement Press produced materials specifically for its rural context in West Virginia. Their primary mission was to get full and correct information out to all Appalachians. They were specifically concerned with the coal-rich areas of Appalachia across eastern Kentucky, the state of West Virginia, parts of eastern Ohio, and eastern Tennessee. They saw this region as affected by a kind of colonial influence from larger urban areas that was, you know, sort of extracting resources from central Appalachia historically for over 100 years at this point and not giving anything back. So they sort of saw the poverty in the region as being a part of of an extractive relationship that central Appalachia had with the rest of the country. This extractionist theory that Sean mentioned is a good tool for describing what it felt like to be living in Appalachia in the 1970s and is still used today to explain people's motivations against strip mining in the region. This is something that in the 1970s they were, they, it was kind of part of an Appalachian identity movement and part of a way to sort of like wrap people into a broad organizing politic that I actually still hear today. So the first time I was exposed to this was at uh, anti-mountaintop removal meetings. People talked about colony within a colony just as a quick framework for understanding motivation against strip mining. The press was active at a time when folks were reflecting on what Appalachian culture is. The idea of bucking common historical stereotypes of the area, uh, embracing the folk music and folk crafts of the region, the accent, um, this is sort of becoming a, a type of identity movement, similarly to how identity movements are happening in other parts of, of the country. One thing that Appalachian Movement Press was doing was reproducing books and essays about labor history in the area. They republished articles from old socialist newspapers about alternative union activity in Appalachia in the 1930s. 
They were relating these past struggles to their own experiences with the United Mine Workers Union because there was a lot of dissonance in the union at the time. They did one, for example, that was about the West Virginia Miners Union, um, and it was fully a facsimile from uh, the old socialist paper Labor Age, but it was about an alternative union that had actually been started by Frank Keeney, who had been pivotal in the uh, Battle of Blair Mountain and some of the earlier mine wars in southern West Virginia. So I think that by by reaching back to the 1930s, they were hoping to point people to something. That, Look, there's alternatives to the kinds of corruption that you're experiencing in United Mine Workers, and here's how people are organizing against it. The design of the publications are stripped down and utilitarian, reflecting a sense of immediacy and urgency to publish these materials. The the fonts are all really really stripped down and basic. The information is very straightforward. It's really rare that there's a picture. Most of the illustrations were lifted from communist and socialist newspapers from several decades before, you know, these kind of really dated, trenchant images of workers, you know, very muscular white men wielding sledgehammers without a shirt on. You know, like if there was an illustration, it might be something like that. For years, the press also published poetry and writing by Don West. He was a Christian radical communist, in essence, an educator, uh, a poet who had achieved quite a bit of kind of mainstream success for a time with his poetry and, and kind of a lifelong organizer. Don West and his wife, Connie West, started the Appalachian South Folklife Center in Pipestone, West Virginia in 1965. Don had been an organizer with the Highlander folk school in in, uh, Tennessee years before, and the center in Pipestem was sort of a new version of that, a central place where they could have folk festivals that people came to. They would run camps and stuff so that kids from the region could just come and hang out and kind of learn. He also had all of this writing that he was doing that was also historical writing about the abolitionist history of Appalachia and these really trenchant, cranky cultural critiques about, you know, I mean, even just kind of talking about the difference between a, a singer of folk songs and a folk singer, you know, and who, whether it was okay to make any money off of singing songs. He was trying to motivate people in the region to a, a type of self-determination, but it seems like he really seized on the ability to just publish whatever he wanted for a time. Uh, So I came across a couple of references to Appalachian Movement Press as the Don West Press, because, you know, fully like a third of their output over a decade was just his writing. Based on the materials that the press published, it seemed that they were pretty isolated, focusing on themselves as a community. I asked Sean whether Appalachians were looking outwards as well to other groups or identity movements going on in the U.S., you know, I was interested then in, in how they might have connected to a group like the Young Patriots in Chicago, for example. Uh, you know, these are Appalachians in, in a sort of diaspora up in a, in a major urban setting, and, and they weren't aware of that. They weren't reaching out that far. I don't think that they meant to be isolationist. I just think that there was so much work to do on home soil that that's where the focus was on a day-to-day. For years since it was an active and operating print shop, Appalachian Movement Press has been under-researched and under-documented, which posed some research challenges for Sean. Everybody that I did get in touch with, the three men so far that I've interviewed, um, 
I think were actually quite surprised that that I cared to dig up what they were doing because I think even in retrospect, it was serving a need. I mean, their work was really hard to find and collect. It does exist in some libraries, which will inherently archive things, but they they were not cataloged as a body of work attributable to Appalachian Movement Press. It was spread around. And in fact, when I went to Pipestem to do some research, that's when I found the basement full of everything left over when they closed the press. I mean, that stuff was just literally dumped in a corner in, in milk crates and Tupperware containers, and it was molding. Interference Archive now houses many of these materials. The three people that Sean interviewed so far are John Clark, Paul Sostrom, and Tom Woodruff who was a union organizer and principal in the press for the entire time. He was completely mystified why I cared. He did talk to me, but he seemed to think that the press itself had failed at sort of sparking the Appalachian Revolution that they wanted to happen at the time. Prior to Sean's writing about Appalachian movement press, the only article that had been written about them was published a year after they opened in a magazine called West Virginia Illustrated. So they were writing about, like, you know, all these people who were 21, 22, who'd started this kind of, they never really said that they were communists or that they were socialists, but kind of the implication was like, they have some pretty strange books in a bookstore downstairs. And anytime I asked about what the conditions in the shop were, you know, did people hang out there? Was it a movement space? It sounded like there were a lot of couches where you could hang, but it was mostly a production facility with offset presses, a dark room for making plates for offset printing, that sort of thing. folks I ever knew were coal mining women and men were coal mining women and men to end this episode we're sharing a small clip from a presentation Sean gave at Interference Archive about his research where he describes one of the publications by Appalachian Movement Press that he is particularly fond of a children's book written by Michael J. Clark and illustrated by Margaret Gregg and they did two children's books and these they're Some of my favorite things that they did, so I have one back there called The Hillbillies, which is really depressing. And then this one I've only seen in in the WV library, and it's called Lazar and Boone Stop Strip Mining Bully to Save Apple Valley and Buttermilk Creek. And it's uh, about sabotage. So it's really, it's a children's story about um, a frog and a mule who go, and so Strip Mining Bully was a bulldozer and they go at night and, and uh, Lazar tries to, to reason with the bulldozer and can't. And so they get stressed out about that because the bulldozer starts destroying their town. And so then they blow it up. <laughs> and they, I mean, and that's it. Oh, and then so they, they actually, they blow it up and then weirdly use the scoop to reflect the sun back to heaven to communicate with God. Like that's sort of like the last couple <laughs> sentences that just get thrown in there. But it's interesting because at this time, I mean, strip mining was a pretty new thing. So this is like, you know, it's kind of great that it's a children's book about sabotage, but it's also, I had a hard time wrapping my head around what it must have been like to, you know, be living in the area when strip mining became, uh, became a new practice.
A huge thank you to Sean for sharing his research on Appalachian Movement Press with us. For links to other resources about Appalachian Movement Press, including articles Sean has written about the press and his research process, visit our show notes. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteered powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening. Stand in my way